You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. And if you would, go ahead and open your Bible to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't own a Bible and you want a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. There's some at the Connect table. Grab one of those Bibles and write your name in it. It is our gift to you. We're continuing our just kind of short series here before I leave on sabbatical. Next Sunday will be my last week preaching before I take off on sabbatical for the summer. And if you have any questions about that, here's what I would recommend. Stick around for the members meeting and we will address our uh, sabbatical policy, what the sabbatical is going to look like, and all of that at the members meeting. So I know that sounds exhilarating, but I would encourage you to stick around. The reason why Laura, who gets like seven applauses when she does announcements, labor on preaching the word up here, silence. Anyway, (laughs) not bitter. Good job, Laura. The reason why she said it's an open members meeting is because if you're someone who is pursuing membership or interested in becoming a family member of Gospel Community Church, we would invite you to come in and listen in and see what member, what member meetings are about and kind of how they're run and what it looks like to be a committed member of Gospel Community Church. So Amen. come in. Oh, please, guys. <laughs> Don't patronize me. Come on. <clears throat> All right. Ephesians chapter 4. Second week, forging a culture of discipleship. Forging a culture of discipleship. Last week was discipleship is giving. This week is this. What it looks like to forge a culture of discipleship is this, is that it's laborious but lovely. It's laborious but lovely for the church, meaning that it's going to be hard work and it's going to be challenging work, but it's going to be worth it. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Spiritual disciplines will be a part of that. If you want to get ahead of your reading for where we're going with our preaching and teaching, start diving into Philippians because we're going to be in Philippians next. And then start diving into the book of Acts, because we're going to be in the book of Acts next. So just to give you guys an outline of where we're going, start reading Philippians, read it, reread it, and it'll give you guys a greater understanding once we dive into that, what is going on there. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. I'm thankful for our church family, and I'm thankful for everyone that's in here this morning, either that is your child or that is investigating who you are. Father, I pray that we walk out with a clear understanding of who you are and what you've done and what you've provided in your son. Father, we remember even someone like Tim Keller this morning who has passed and his family's grieving and his church family is grieving that loss. But we recognize this, that for all of, the, uh, for all of us that are in Christ, awaits for us a beautiful meeting with you and a beautiful feast with you one day in all eternity, Jesus, where the wedding supper of the Lamb, we see you, we recognize you, and know that it's only through you and through your work that we have been welcomed into your eternity and that we are sustained. And I pray that as we grieve the loss of loved ones, we would also celebrate those that are getting to experience presence with you now. I pray that as we go through hardships, the good news for us would be remembered that Jesus, you are coming back. 
and that you will do away with sin and grief and pain and sorrow. I pray for those in this room that are going through a difficult time and season in their life, that they would know that you are the great high priest who knows their pain, who knows what they're going through. Father, I pray for our church family, those that are celebrating. I pray that we would celebrate with them and that they know they have a God who rejoices over them and celebrates with them as well. Father, correct us this morning. Challenge us this morning. Speak to us this morning. Give us attentive ears. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Discipleship is lovely but beautiful. Ephesians 4, we're going to start in verse 11. I'm going to read it, and then we will unpack it. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We live in a culture today that doesn't value growing up. We live in a culture today that doesn't value labor and, and sometimes the laborious work of what it takes to grow up. It's hard to grow up. Raise kids and you can see, oftentimes kids don't like to grow up. They want to be treated like grown-ups, but they don't want the responsibilities of what it is to grow up because it's hard work. It takes responsibility. It takes sacrifice. Our culture celebrates never growing up. Let, let me give you some examples from music and from all different genres here, okay, so I can pick on everyone. Jake Owen, who represents country music, has a song called Barefoot Blue Jean Night, where the main chorus says that we're never going to grow up and we're never going to slow down. Taylor Swift, who I don't know who she represents anymore, but she has a song that is titled Never Grow Up. It actually wasn't a joke. I, I, don't, know, I don't know where she's at. But Never Grow Up. It says, oh, darling, don't you ever grow up. Don't you ever grow up. Here's one for Avril Lavigne. So, yeah punk or something. Here's to never growing up. Oh, whoa. Oh, whoa. Here's to never growing up. And it's repeated again. And <laughs> Jay-Z and Mr. Hudson have young forever. They want to, uh, the lyrics are forever young. I want to be forever young. Song after song, and I only did four, and you can Google and see so many songs are about this concept, never growing up. Let's stay children. But let me ask you this. What would you do if you walked into Toys R Us and saw a a full-grown man in there just giddy? I mean, jolly, jumping around the store, just energized, having the best time of his life. What would you do if you went to the carnival or the fair and you saw a grown man on the merry-go-round the whole time just screaming with excitement as he went around the merry-go-round time after time after time? What would you think? You go to the mall, 
If you've not been to the mall around here, there's a little play area in the middle of the mall for toddlers, very small things. You see a full-grown man, and he's in there, just climbing over the stuff, having the time of his life. What do you think? You look at that and go, something's off. Something's wrong. And, and, and not to be mean, you literally would look at that and go, something's not right. But how is it that for so long we've allowed people essentially inside of the church world to remain toddlers and infants, never challenging men and women to grow up into Christ? Said, it, it's, it's okay. You don't need to read your Bible. You don't need to know anything about your Bible. You don't need to pray. In fact, the whole church experience for you can just be that, an experience built just for you. And you can be a spectator. Come in whenever you want. We can try to tune the lights for you, so that's a nice experience. You can sit in. Make sure you leave as soon as the pastor closes out for a prayer or whatever, so you can bolt out the back. We've turned church into something that resembles oftentimes a concert to where we can just come and be spectators and have little to no investment. We have a divorce rate in our culture at, at about 50%. I, I, I wonder how the church can help be a part of a solution to something like that when we aren't calling people to much level of commitment. And so then people get into their marriages and think, marriage is all about me. I married the spouse so they can look at me and tell me I'm the best thing in the world to them. They can essentially worship me, service all of my needs, and make sure that I'm well taken care of. Because that's what church seems to be like. I know that's brash and, <laughs> and direct. But in a lot of ways, Western Christianity has adopted something that looks like that. Low committal or non-committal which is why membership's not that important to people. They're like, yeah, I don't want to sign up. I don't want to become a member. I don't want to be held accountable. I don't want to commit to anything. I just want to come, and, and I hope the worship style is something that I like that moves me experientially, and I hope that the preaching's like this, and if it's not that guy and that personality, I just don't know. Therefore, people make changes. They, they move. They leave church families. They make big decisions in life with little thought how decisions that they make actually have an impact on the church family. And we ask, what does it look like to grow up as a church? What does it look like to grow up as a Christian? How can the church be a part of helping men and women to grow up so that we don't look like grown men riding the merry-go-round? So that we can not have a Peter Pan theology of never growing up. What does it look like to lovingly and graciously challenge a church and a church family to grow up to maturity in Christ. Because we see here, as Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, that maturation and maturity is a part of growing up in Christ. Church family, our church is eight years old this year. So if you're coming here, we should probably look something like an eight-year-old church. But hopefully in 18 and 20 years, what happens is a lot of the committed members and saints have continued to grow into maturity and what it looks like to model and reflect Christ in his holiness, in his humility, and collectively what it looks like for the church to represent that to one another and to the world. And so let me say this as we dive in. If you're here and you're not a Christian, what a great time to sit in. Because essentially what we're doing is we're opening up the Christian playbook for you and you can get a peek of it. And, and what you can see is, does this church family operate in such a way 
that seems to be faithful to the word of God. But you can also sit in and go, what would I be signing up for, so to speak, if I was a Christian? And we hope to faithfully and accurately show you what that would look like for you to be a member of a church, what it would look like for you to be committed, what it would look like for you to grow up. Because again, nowadays, if you uh, uh, heard a pastor say recently, and we share this at one of the men's coffee, but if you run into a young man now who loves theology and he loves the word of God and he's studying church history, you look at him and go, that man needs to go to seminary. And a lot of times it's because that man makes me uncomfortable with his hunger for the Lord. (laughs) So let's send him off to seminary. What we should say is, that's something that we should see across the board of the church is young men and women that go, I am hungry to grow and learn in my understanding of God and who he's revealed himself to be in his word, that I'm eager and hungry to grow in my theology and doctrine because doctrine and theology is teaching me all about who God is and what he's done to save and redeem his family and his Christ's bride. So let's look at this. And I know we're jumping in with a conjunction at and, verse 11, and. So and is talking about Jesus who descended and who ascended, but we're going to circle back to that. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. I don't believe these are meant to be offices or for us to see them as offices as much as gifts because Paul is unpacking them as gifts. And if we look elsewhere in Romans 12, 3, there's a, there's a list there. It says, for by the grace, and this is Romans 12, 3, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has uh, distributed to each one of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many form one body, and each member belongs to the others. We have different gifts, verse 6 according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encouragement, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is a lead, do it diligently. If it is a show mercy, do it cheerfully. Again, in 1 Peter 4, 7, it says, therefore be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one without grumbling. Each one of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. If anyone speaks, they should speak as one who speaks the very words of God. If one serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I believe these are describing gifts. I don't believe... Let me say this. If someone comes to you and says, I'm an apostle or a prophet, please run. It is a position that was reserved and an office that was reserved for the early church. We do not have apostles in the church today. We do not have prophets in the church today. So if someone were to say that to you, please come talk to me. Please come talk to one of our pastors. And I would say run. What we do see and what we do have is we have shepherds and pastors and elders that are equipped with gifts, just like the Spirit has given gifts to many people in various forms. I also don't know if I find a spiritual gifts test super helpful. It seems like people are more than willing to take 
a spiritual gift test like they are a personality test and then spend hours thinking about all their spiritual gifts and all this. Instead, I think when you get plugged into a church family and the church family has the needs, you lean into those needs and see how the Spirit supernaturally allows you to have the gifts you do to serve and meet the needs of that family. So it's like, I'm, you know what? I'm going to wait. There's a few test profiles out there. I haven't taken them all yet. Once I, once I kind of run them through, I got to kind of see where I fit in. And then after I think this is where I might, then I'll jump in. It's like, no. This is the need, step into the need, and then see how God uses the gifts that he's given you to serve the body of Christ. So what do we have here? We have apostles and prophets, which, like I said, I believe those were early New Testament offices, but you can see the way that someone with apostleship offers. It's meant to be that they are the sent one or sent people, and so someone could operate that way in a gifted sort of way. A prophet is someone who declares the truth of God's word. Someone could operate that way in a gifted sort of way. And then we see the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers. We would recognize that shepherds, pastors, need to be able to teach. Pastors need to be able to teach. It's one of the qualifications of a pastor. I believe what it's talking about is, here's the way in which a pastor loves and serves the local church. How? They evangelize. Everyone's called to evangelize, but pastors are called to evangelize. Isn't that interesting that when we think of evangelism, we instantly think non-Christian. And here it's like, hey, this was given. Someone with the gift of evangelism for the church. Wait a minute. And we talked about this last week. The, the, the gift of evangelizing is the gift of proclaiming the gospel. So a pastor needs to be able to teach, and specifically what he's teaching is the gospel. And by doing that, and by teaching the gospel, what happens is the saints, if we keep reading, are equipped for the work of ministry. So a pastor's job, please hear this, is we're forging a culture of discipleship. We're going to need to see that discipleship is labor, laborious, but it's lovely. It is laborious for pastors to shepherd, to teach, to evangelize, to take time and energy and effort to do those things but it's also laborious for you to know this. The way that's lived out is not the pastor over there is supposed to do all these things in the church and all these ministries. What's actually supposed to happen is the pastor's job, laborious, is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And please, if you think those are my words, let's read it again. 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. I can't tell you countless times who so many people are like, hey, our church needs to get that started. Hey, we need to make this happen. Hey, we need to do this. Great thoughts. But it's the pastor's job to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. That means if the saints are not fit to do the work, then like a personal trainer, we need to help you become fit to do the work of ministry. But if the expectation is that the pastors do all the work of ministry, then we're not getting an accurate understanding of what pastors are even called to do. Preach, teach, and equip people to do the work of ministry. For what purpose? It says, look, for the building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what are, what are we supposed to do? Paul says, gave people, gave pastors, 
who teach, who evangelize, who equip. The saints to do the work in the ministry for the building up of one another. So first, we equip the saints to do the work of ministry. What is the work? Building one another up. Building one another up. So what does it look like to build someone up? Let me say this first. Please hear this. The work of building someone else up is slow, just like building a building is. It's a work of patience. It's a work of diligence, and it's a work that's done over time. Sadly, we get so frustrated with people because we expect them to change overnight. Building up the body of Christ happens in time. And it's slow, laborious work, but it's lovely work. And it's beautiful, but it takes a lot of patience and a lot of diligence. And we can't expect change to happen overnight. The, the, the reality is so many people want growth, but they want something that's just quick and intense, that if I can do this, then I can just be here. Growth is slow, and it's painful sometimes. It's laborious, but it's lovely. It's why if you have ever seen the ads and stuff like that, like there's six-minute abs or a six-minute workout or, you know, whatever it is in five minutes, and, we, and, and we're like, get, get abs in four weeks. It's like, those are so attractive to so many people. Why? It's like, you mean all I got to do is a six-minute workout for abs? You mean all I got to do is follow this program for four weeks? And we go, yes, because we are people that want instant results. Building up. The body of Christ takes time, a lot of time. It's laborious, but lovely. It means getting invested in people's lives. It means getting invested in brokenness. Then it says, until we all attain the unity of the faith. What's the unity of the faith? Think about this. How does, how does someone get a right-wing person and a left-wing person together in one group? How does someone get a zealot and a tax collector together in one group? The only way that happens and to where there's unity is if the faith is in the person is more beautiful than whatever the politics are that they're worshiping. That's it. And for Jesus to have these people on these two extremes and two opposite sides together in a room meant, my goodness, there must have been someone they were laser focused on that made all their ideologies and all their politics squash in the face of someone so beautiful. That's what brings unity to a church family. When we are centered on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, not everything else. And it says, and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ. We're, the, the, the whole thing is we are to be growing up into a knowledge and an understanding of who Christ is, into mature manhood, into mature adults. But it's laborious and it's lovely. How, how does all of this happen? Jump ahead with me and look at verse 15. Paul says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. What is the truth? Sanctif sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. That's what Jesus says. This is truth. <laughs> this is the truth. And we are to speak the truth in love. Think about this. If you only have truth and you just give people truth but no love, 
It's really unhealthy. But if you only give people love without any truth, it's just as equally unhealthy. Though our culture today says that somehow seems more kind, I would say it is equally as unkind to just give people love with no truth as it is to give people all truth with no love. Christians are to do both, to speak the truth in love. But here's the problem. You can't speak the truth in love unless you're in the truth. Jesus couldn't combat the lies of the enemy unless he knew the word itself. You can't walk up to someone and say, hey, what you're doing's wrong. And they're like, why? You're like, I don't know. Yeah, good question. I just feel like it is. No. We, we also don't want to just be a stop discipler. In other words, hey, you should just stop doing that. Why? <laughs> this is because, do you know who Christ has made you? The reason I'm going to tell you to stop living an impure life and having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend is because you are actually completely pure in the eyes of God. You're holy, innocent, without a single spot of sin on you. And the reason why I would charge you to live a pure life is because that would only be true of your new nature in Christ. You see, I can say, stop doing that, but I can also say, hey, start living true to who you are in Christ. And by doing that, what I'm doing is I'm building someone up in Christ. I'm speaking the truth in love. The truth is, don't live this way. But the other truth is, is live this way. Sadly, we've also turned the church culture into, hey, what I need is I need a bunch of people around me that are just cheerleaders. Kind of just come along, give me some good games, and let me be me. The truth is, that's not loving. (laughs) That's not what it looks like to build one another up. What it looks like to build one another up into Christ, who, who is the head, is to learn to say difficult things to one another. So much so that when I say it, my voice might tremble. I might be shaky. I might be unsettled. But I actually love the person so much that I don't want them to live in such a way that the Bible that God's word says would be damning to their life. Like my coming into someone's life to speak the truth is like, man, I'm, I'm like trembling because I feel the weight of this. Like I love you so much that I don't want you to live this way anymore. It's also because I know that Christ has empowered you to live a completely different way. If we go back to 13, it says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may, listen, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Discipleship is laborious, but it's lovely. It's really difficult. It's really hard. And it's really challenging, but it's crucial. I spent the first, essentially, three years of my life following Jesus pretty removed from a local church family. And the evidence that I was removed became really clear. It's not even so much that I went back into my rebellious lifestyle. It's that I swung so far in the other direction. I was a real just joy kill. 
a real fun person to be around. I literally would only watch two movies, and maybe you know this, but I would watch Courageous and Facing the Giants. And the only reason that a couple of you laughed is because because you know who Kirk Cameron is and what those movies are. The rest of you are like, dude, I don't know. Praise God. (laughs) That and Caleb as like, this is my movies, this is my radio station. I took communion by myself in my bedroom every day. Every day, I had a refrigerator. I was that committed. I had a refrigerator in my bedroom with grape juice in it. I'm not kidding. And I believe day after day that once upon a time, Jesus saved me to bring into, me into his family. And now day after day, it is on me to make sure that I maintain God's love for me. Something I still struggle to believe today, but by God's grace, he brought men and women into my life inside of a local church family to say, Rick, you're believing something that is not the gospel. And through that, I started to mature and grow up. To the outside world, it might have seemed like I was a mature Christian. Man, I was so far from the heart of Christ. I was living my life in fear and rebelling that at any moment, I was snuffed out. When I got plugged into a church family, when I became a member, people started to challenge me and say, Rick, what are you believing? Because it doesn't sound like you are believing a message of the gospel. And it was true. My message was, Jesus got me in, now I better uphold Instead of Jesus got me in, he's keeping me in, and he's going to keep me in. That's why we need committed people recognizing that you have a role and a gift and a purpose to the church family, to be invested, to build people up, to be held accountable, to hold others accountable. That's what makes a church family beautiful and lovely to the outside world. When they see the way in that we love one another, then Jesus goes, they're going to know you're my disciples. It's hard to speak the truth if you don't know it. I can't encourage you enough. Be grounded and rooted in the word of God. Not not just so that you can know it and receive the beauty and the truth of who God is, but also so you can build others up. That's the purpose. Your spiritual gifts are not for flashiness. They're actually to build other people up. You cannot build people up when you are disconnected from the body of Christ. It's so hard for me to even engage a serious conversation when people are like, yeah, you can be a Christian and not go to church. I'm like, that's like a disembodied arm just floating somewhere. It's purposeless. That arm, God uniquely gifted to be a part of a whole family body, to be used for the purpose of building one another up so that we can all grow up in a Christ-likeness. That means that my investment into your life means I love you so much and I'm so invested into you that I don't want to grow at a rapid pace you can't keep up with. I want to come alongside of you and help you grow into mature manhood in Christ with me. It's not a competition. It's coming alongside of one another in committed, devoted love and saying, I'm committed to help you grow up into Christ. I'm committed to help you understand the beauty and the glory of who God is. What is this beauty and glory of the gospel? Let's look back to verse 9. We're going to go back to verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That's, That's cited from Psalm 68. In saying he ascended, we have this parenthetical by Paul in 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? 
He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And that's when Paul goes, and he gave. What's Paul saying here? Your motivation for loving and serving and being invested into one another's health and growth, it's laborious and it's lovely. But our motivation comes from this, that Christ Jesus, who was exalted at the throne of God, who created all things, who owned all things, who possessed all things, literally walked this earth. He who was exalted on high descended to the earth on the greatest rescue mission that has ever been seen in human history. What do I mean? Let's go back to chapter two in Ephesians. This is gonna be helpful for you because maybe you're here and you're investigating Christianity and you're like, I don't fully understand what's going on. So Genesis, Ephesians two says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Jesus didn't come so you and him can partner together and get you into a state to where you are holy and righteous and perfect and reconciled to God. Jesus came for dead people. And in case you're wondering if there's any other translation of the Greek for dead, there is one common one that's used and it's uh, corpse. So love seeing what corpse and dead people do. They're not working together with Jesus to to somehow work out their salvation together, the Bible says you were dead in your trespasses. In other words, you were dead in your relationship to God, not able to save yourself. I said this years ago, but it's not like someone threw you a life preserver and you swam over there and grabbed a hold of the life preserver. It's, it's literally as if you were dead on the bottom of the ocean, completely lifeless, can't do anything, and, and Christ swims down and breathes life into your lungs and calls a dead corpse to come to life. That's what it's more like. And you're like, but I'm a good person. Oh, we have a name for that. It's called justification by works. Everyone in this world is religious. I love the Pacific Northwest. In some ways, it's easier to evangelize here because everyone in the Pacific Northwest is very interested in all the good works that they do. And so we believe that we are justified by our works. Christians don't believe that. We don't believe that we're justified by anything that we do. I believe that's a, uh, that's a religious belief. That's religion. It's, man's may, it's a man-made attempt to try to show ourselves worthy of God. Don't worry if you're like, man, but I want to bring something to the table. You brought a whole slew of sin. Just tons of it. And then what we see in the gospel is the most bogus and beautiful exchange in human history. Explain this to our children yesterday. Jesus takes all the ways you're trying to save yourself, all the ways you're trying to control God by thinking that somehow you can earn his favor and love. He takes all of that, your sin, your rebellion, the way you're selfish, the way you don't attempt to love and serve his bride. And he said, give me all of your sin and all the punishment it deserves and I'll take it. And he says, but I'm going to make a trade with you. When you believe in me, he goes, I'm going to give you all of my righteousness and all of my holiness and all of my purity and all of my perfection that you don't deserve. The most bogus and beautiful trade in human history happened where Christ exchanges with us, as it's called the great exchange, our rags for his righteousness. And now when God sees us, and now when when Christ sees us, 
He sees beauty and radiance, glory and perfection, because when he looks at us individually and corporately, what he sees is the beauty and glory of his son that was given to the church. Which is why in Ephesians 1, if you go back even further, it says this, and he put, 122 says this, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. If you want to know what Jesus Christ looks like, where is the picture that he gave of that on earth? It's like, look at the church. Look at the church when it's assembled, when it's loving and working properly, building one another up, equipping one another, laying down its lives for one another. A church dies, like I said last week, in the same way a marriage dies. When we start showing up saying, in my marriage, my wife, Allie, right over here, if I say, Allie, your whole existence is to best love and serve me. And I hope you got a good plan to do it. Sadly, we show up a lot of ways to say, my whole existence at at this church is to figure out how you're going to love and serve me. And I hope you got a good plan to do it. When in all reality, we, we should be showing up saying, I don't deserve to be a part of God's family and Christ's kingdom. My goodness, what a family he has purchased for me. Broken, no doubt, but beautiful. How do I love and serve and invest my life into it? As we do that, it starts to display a beautiful picture for the world to see. Do you know what else you have in Christ and why it's important that you have a knowledge of him? The same way that it's important for a good photographer to have a good lens because you want to capture beauty. In the same way that it's important for a bride on her wedding day to have the right dress because she wants to captivate her groom. Look at what we have in Christ. It's beautiful. When we talk about doctrine and theology, that's a good thing because it's beautiful. Go back to Ephesians 1 with me and let's see the list that we are given in Christ, starting in verse 3. Mark this in your Bibles. This is incredible. If, you're, if the, you wake up some days going, man, I'm I just not feeling it, mark this and go, this is true. My feelings, they might not be, but this is true. Let's read through this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with some, uh-uh, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us. God chose you. Before he created the world, God chose you knowing everything that you were going to do, not disappointed with how you've turned out. He already knew it. He's not committed to a future version of you. He's committed to you right now. He chose you, knowing everything you would do. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. You are holy and blameless. That means there's nothing that you could be blamed for. Christ took the blame before him. Keep going. Verse five, in love, he predestined us for adoption. You are adopted. You are, you are adopted son and daughter into God's family through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We are in Christ. In him, we have redemption. That means you're purchased. That means Christ has purchased you and you don't come with a gift receipt. There are no returns. Redemption through the through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We have been forgiven. We go to God as forgiven people because of Christ. According to the riches of his grace, he's rich in grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven, things on earth. Keep going. I want you to see a couple more things. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. We have an inheritance. 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Here we go. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed. You were sealed. That's what a king did. They had a ring with the seal and that marked authority. It meant final. It meant done. Think about this. The way that you know that you are sealed and held by God in Christ is because God put God inside of you. God is unchangeable and he's immovable, which means this, God would have to move outside of you, which is something that God will not do in order for you to lose your salvation. Since God doesn't change, his headquarters inside of you will remain, which means you are anchored in Christ. But it also means this, and we'll end here in chapter three, verse 18. He says this, that being so rooted and grounded in this love, in this knowledge of Christ, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. My heart and prayer for our church family is that we are filled with the fullness of God, that our hearts are full in God, and that we would know this love. Paul's like, there's this love that's so rich, so deep, so vast that your minds can't even comprehend it. Even driving here this morning, I was looking, I'm like, man, there's so many leaves on the trees. There's like so many blades of grass. There's so many just things in this world that can be calculated. But the one thing you cannot add up is God's love for you and for his bride. It's, it, it's beyond knowledge. It's something that cannot be calculated. It is insurmountable as, as, as Paul is saying. And so when we understand all that and that knowledge of, of who Christ is and what he's done and who he's made us. And then we come back and we read something like this. We go, yeah, I want to do that. I want to help other people understand a love like that, a sacrifice like that, a worldview like that, that has the power to turn things upside down. And then we read that he gave evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge, that beautiful knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and to the measure and the stature of the fullness in Christ. We read that because we go, wow, he's done that for me. He's done that for us. I'm going to get so involved and invested in your life that I'm going to come alongside of you and, and be a part of the maturity as you grow in that knowledge and it changes and transforms every aspect of your life. Let's pray. Father, we love you and praise you for the good news of the gospel, for the sacrifice, Jesus, that you've given. We recognize that the, the work of ministry and discipleship is laborious, but it's also lovely. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen.